He takes. Pocket holds. Looks. Looks. Stafford looking for somewhere to go. Throws end zone up for grabs. Calvin, did he catch it? Oh, baby, he did it again. Megatron with a score. Calvin went up between three Cowboys and hauled it in. Touchdown, Detroit Lions. They're right back in it. So, Don, yes. we spent a lot of time in the open last week kind of talking about the Bills, and rightly so. It was coming off probably the biggest win that the franchise has had in the last 10 years or so. Yeah, easily. And I guess my question for you today in the open, and welcome to the Sportscasters. It is episode 45, October 4th, 2011. Getting really close to the time of the sports year I love most, where it seems like everything is going full bore. We have baseball playoffs going on right now. We're five weeks into the NFL season, about six weeks into the college football season. Uh, Hockey's getting ready to start, which we're going to talk about quite a bit in the next couple weeks. And uh, we'll see about the NBA. But it's that great time of the year where everything is going. Uh, We have a great show for you today. uh, And we have a great show for you next week, which I'm really excited about too. So uh, some great shows coming up. And uh, just for today, Tim Layden the senior writer, one of the senior writers at Sports Illustrated, is going to be on the show today. And this is one uh, inside baseball here I've been working on for a long time getting. So I'm really excited about that. Also, we have Andrew Pirloff. And as for our third guest today, uh, as I speak right now, we haven't decided what direction we're going to go. But right. we'll work it out by the end of the show, obviously. <laughs> so anyway, Don, my question for you kind of off the top is this. And that is, have you, has your expectations or your feelings or your excitement about the team changed at all based on what happened in Cincinnati? Um, not a ton. I think the one thing they're going to have to do now is if you go through their schedule and try to pick out wins and if they got to get to 10 or 11 wins to make the playoffs, is now they have to probably win a game that maybe I didn't think they would before. Uh, maybe that's the second Jets game, maybe early in the season, I thought, okay, split with the Jets. You've already split with the Patriots, and that'll be enough. But the Jets haven't looked very impressive at all. Uh, sometimes bad teams beat better teams, and maybe the Bills aren't a great team, and maybe the gap isn't as big as people would have thought. And like we said, maybe Vegas knew something. It was only a three-point line. That's probably the best defense they've played all year, and they just didn't do enough to win, I guess. You know, it's interesting because one thing we talked about was how if the Bills didn't make the playoffs, there might be kind of a, a, a sour feeling in the, in the sense that they were just in the wrong division. But it seems like Pittsburgh in the Jets might not be as good as we thought. No. Does that kind of open it up for your uh, you know, your excitement about the chances of the playoffs? Yeah, I think so for sure. I mean, it's looking like Baltimore – and maybe the Patriots, I guess, or the cream of the crop. Uh, San Diego might be the only – I mean, there's three divisions there that maybe only one team's going to make it out. Maybe Tennessee sticks around and tries to steal one of those spots too. But if Buffalo – I think if they finish – I mean, we'll predict way out. I think if they finish second in the division that they'll make the playoffs. The one thing they have to avoid real quick, though, is this is a tough part of their schedule. I mean, they lost a the game that they were favored in. 
they might not be favored for the next three weeks. So they're going to have to try to find a win or two in games that they're probably not going to be favored in. Well, they're going to play all four NFC East teams in the next five weeks, right? I believe so. They play Philly this coming week. Then I think the Giants. I know they have the it Jets was, in there. It was and then Washington somewhere. Yeah, it was four of six. Right. And one game is gone now. So it's four of five against the NFC East. How many of those NFC East games do you think they have to win? Would you be happy with two and two? I th- uh, yeah, earlier in the year, I probably wouldn't have said they were going to beat the Giants. They probably wouldn't have said they were going to beat Philly. Probably so, would have said they would have beaten Washington. Washington, right. And Washington's who is three and three one. And one. Right. right. So, yeah, I think I would take a split there. I mean, if you take a split there, that puts them at five and three. And, again, go beat the Jets twice, and then you got seven wins, and then just find three more wins somewhere else in your schedule. A couple notes before we get going with three things. Last week, episode 44, we had Dan Wolken, Ben Nicholson-Smith, and our buddy Tim Graham on the show. It's still worth a listen. Check it out on our website, Sportscasters. Website is www.sports-casters.com. Also, a little bit of a flipperoo. I was on a show last week. Did you listen to it? I haven't yet, no. You bastard. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was on a show last week. The Ken Fangs, who was on the show in August, and his partner from the Sports Media Journal were nice enough to have me on the show. And I think I did pretty good. I think I wrapped us well and uh, I think it was good exposure for our show and I know that mom went to bed happy with a smile on her face so I said that's what it's all about check that out if you get the chance at fangsbite.com you can you can find it Uh, also next week is a big week Greg Easterbrook who is Don's man he's awesome he's gonna join us and I spent about a whole day in between this show and last week, nailing it down, and it worked out great. And he's a really cool guy. And I'm also hoping to pair that with Nick Bakai. So I'm nice. working on those two things. Well, Easterbrook's a, a definite, and, and Bakai's a, a probable. So let's get started because we can't get to episode number 46 before we finish episode number 45. And again, Tim Layden, Andrew Pierloff, and a mystery guest at the end. <laughs> let's get started with three let's things. Let's play a game. All right. Yeah. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Alright, my first thing this week it may sound a little bit like sour grapes. But uh, there were a few calls this weekend in football games that uh, were questionable at best and definitely affected the outcome of games. We'll start with the one that didn't involve my team, the Cruz fumble. I can't think of his first name. Victor, I believe. Yep. Cruz uh, of the Giants, who went to the ground after kind of stumbling. I'm sure everyone's seen it. Uh, He just left the ball on the ground, stood up, and walked away kind of thinking maybe it was like a college game still. He I'd almost guarantee that. That, he, right, that, that was his guy. thought. Yeah. Right. Well, Mike Pierre, Pieria, I'm saying his name wrong. Mike Pierre said it best, that the call they made protected him from his own stupidity. Yep. And that's not what it should be designed to do. They don't, the, rules aren't to des, the rules are to make the game fair or make it played the way it's supposed to be played. 
not to protect players from things like that. And that's exactly what that official did. And I don't love that. I mean, it would have been a rough way for them to lose a game. But that said, it's a bad call. The Giants, or the uh, Cardinals, were clearly screwed, messed up by it. Yeah. And then on the very next play, they lost the game on yep. a long Knicks catch. Uh, so that was the wrong call, and I, I think everyone knows that was the wrong call. The, the call that they officially made was that he had given himself up. Right. And that when you give yourself up, there's an, a whistle, thus not a fumble. Right, but I mean... But obviously he, he didn't give himself up. Right. He just fell down. Uh, my guess is that he probably was... His instinct was still that of college, college football. Right. And he just probably figured he was down and he, he made a mistake. And I bet he doesn't make that mistake again. No. Yeah. Uh, the second one was the one that's going to sound like sour grapes. is the Stevie Johnson catch or incomplete catch as, it may, as it'll go down. My biggest problem with this was the guy making the call was in no position to make the call. It was the sideline referee. Because it was originally way called down the, the catch. Field. Originally called the catch. Then they huddled overruled. up with the refs. It was called incomplete. And again, it went to replay. The Bills uh, challenged it. And I know there has to be indisputable evidence to overturn a call on the field. But that said, there was absolutely zero evidence of that- him not catching the ball. Right. So it's just a weird gray area. Uh, I think everyone in this, like I said, maybe he, I'm not even going to say maybe he didn't catch it. I think he caught it. He caught it. Uh, I'm not a Bills fan. He caught it. I think the guy had no business overturning the original call. He wasn't in a position to do it. And I think the ref, He was excited about it, though. Right. He the, came running yeah. like a champion. And I think the, the head official that had to look at under the... Uh, under the hood there. I think he copped out a little bit. I think he was afraid to overturn it without clear-cut evidence, and I know that's supposed to be the way the rule works, but it's a case where it didn't work. And the last thing we kind of talked about before the show was there were two instances where the tuck rule could have come into play. One was Andy Dalton. Yep. Uh, he kind of he did tuck the ball, Yep. and he got sacked, and as he was bringing the ball down, he knocked it out. Very similar to the Tom Brady the tuck original, rule. The original tuck, tuck rule. rule game, yeah. Right. Uh, Sanchez also had a, a play where he tucked the ball and then his hand was hit. The ball actually went forward, too. I was actually a little bit surprised that that one wasn't called an incomplete pass, but I think it was the right call. The problem here isn't necessarily, I don't think they got either of these wrong necessarily, but it's just that there's so much gray area in the NFL when it comes to a lot of their rules. There is. I mean, there's three rules right there, three totally different instances of rules that just aren't very black and white. There's a lot of gray area. Uh, a local radio guy here, Mike Shopes, a smart guy, does good radio, said he's got an easy way. He he would like to just see football be more black and white. And as far as the tuck rule goes or as far as incomplete passes go or fumbles, anything that the quarterback throws that doesn't go across the line of scrimmage should be a fumble. And I don't know how that would change the game that much. I don't really think it would. And I, I think it's a good idea. I think it would change it for the better. You wouldn't have these... You wouldn't have a game known as a tuck rule game because of the rule book being so complicated that it needs to be interpreted for people. Yeah, I think that the rules sometimes are a little too complicated. And we're going to have to keep a list of all this stuff because I did mention that at some point when we'll ha- we right. feel it's right, we will have Mike Pierre on the show. Uh, I don't. We probably want to wait probably till like eh, probably the eighth, ninth, tenth week of the season. We'll kind of keep a nice list going. We'll get the chance to ask him about all these things. And 
one rule, just since we're on the topic, that I think is not working. There was a lot of debate in the offseason about two rule changes. Oh. One is the kickoff right. into the end zone. You know what? I think that's okay. There's, there's been a lot there's of kicks returned. There's been plenty of kicks returned yeah. for a touchdown. I think, in a way, there's sometimes kicks that would have been Neil. Neil's before that aren't because there's a more of a more of a sense of urgency to return them when you get the chance. Right, right. Like the McKnight one is maybe a great example of that. Joe McKnight had a kickoff return for a touchdown. If you had seen it, he was 70 yards deep. Yeah, Hester had one that wasn't a touchdown, but it was real long. Last season, they probably would have kneeled those. But for be- sure, right. But since there's so many kneels already, they're bringing those out. And you know what? That rule's about safety, and I'm not going to kill any rule that's made about safety. Okay. Because there's enough injuries as it is, and as the physics get more and more crazy each year with the strength and speed of the playoffs, I'm fine with that. That rule's kind of turned out to be uh, fine. Right. The one that isn't working is the rule where every scoring play is looked at and confirmed. And here's how I'd change it. I think that they shouldn't have taken the power away from the coaches to challenge those plays. I think that it's fine if you want to have all these plays looked at and then that's fine. But... If a guy decides not to review one, I think they should be a- the coach should be able to still say, "I want to use one of my challenges here to to, to have this reviewed." I know I saw an instance where that came into play, but it I can't came remember into the play game. in the Ravens and Jets game, and they they decided not to review. It might have been the the Sanchez play we were talking about. It was definitely. On the Jets, the Ravens scored a touchdown. Oh, right, because that play. was a scoring play, right? And Rex Ryan took a timeout just to yell at the officials. Yeah, that's right. About the fact that he couldn't challenge it. That's right. And I think we're giving a little bit too much power to someone in the booth who's under a lot of pressure to make the decision quick because you don't want to spend five minutes confirming these because there's plenty of scoring as it is. Right. So they're under a lot of pressure to make these decisions quickly. And the decision he's making is just, will the ref look at it? I think there's been too many close ones where they haven't decided to look at it. And I just think that it's fine if you want to do that, but allow the coach to still have the power to use his challenges for those plays. Why not? Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, And we were talking about gray area rules and just trying to get more black and white. And one instance that I think they've made a good adjustment is allowing force outs. Like there's no such thing as a force out anymore. Right. No longer does the referee have to determine, well, he probably would have landed in bounds. And I mean, that's, so that's just one example of a time they have changed a rule to make it more black and white. Absolutely. Okay. My first thing, that was a good, good discussion there. I like that. My first thing, you know, I was watching the Monday night football game last night and I was a little bummed out every time they cut to a shot of Peyton Manning in the booth. Yeah. You know, it just didn't seem it didn't feel right. Like that should have been the great Peyton Manning against the up and coming Josh Freeman. Yep. And instead we got stuck watching Curtis Painter. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's it stunk. He completed it, ten passes. I was disappointed. Yeah. You know, it, it it's like the NFL has some great stars right now in the league, Aaron Rodgers and Drew Brees and Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, and it's disappointing. We had that season a few years ago where we didn't get Tom Brady all year, and at least in that case, we had the emergence of, I don't want to say a star, but a new name in the league, maybe. Matt Matt Castle Castle, emerged out of that. But 
I don't see that same thing happening here. I think it's just going to be a season of poor quarterback play, a season of sucking for luck for the Colts, <laughs> so to speak. And I bring it up because I hope the same thing doesn't happen in the National Hockey League last year. It happened for half the league, half the season last year anyways. Sidney Crosby's concussion issue just gets scarier and scarier by the day. He is making the initial road trip with the team. I think that's a good sign that he's traveling again. But I've still heard as recently of a, a month ago that he can't get to more than 80% physical output without, without getting having headaches. headaches. Yeah, I don't know what it is about football or hockey injuries. Maybe their helmets haven't advanced to the way football has, but it seems like football players recover faster or, I don't know, maybe they're pushing guys out there. Or maybe hockey just has more stringent testing. But, I mean, look at Mark Savard. He's been out for, what, two years now? And that was a shame because he's such a cool guy. Yeah, he's a nice guy. And uh, the same thing seems to be happening with Crosby, hopefully not to that extent. And, you know, Crosby's a guy that the NHL literally held a lottery and televised it for the rights to draft him. Right. He hasn't let us down. He's already won a Stanley Cup. He's won a gold medal, scored a game-winning goal in overtime in that gold medal game. He's had a fantastic career, and it would be just a shame – for it to end because of this. And it would be even worse if he ends up in a Lemieux situation. You know how Lemieux kind of always fought his back and there'd be years where he'd be okay, there'd be years where he, he right. couldn't play. I hope this doesn't become like a long-term term thing with Crosby, you know, where he maybe gets through six months and then has another concussion and he's gone and then he comes back. And, you know, it just scares me and it, it's disappointing as a fan, which is what I really am. And I just want to see the stars. And I know that's why the NFL goes through all of the rule changes that they do to try to protect the the quarterbacks. And this is maybe a freak thing where maybe the lockout uh, played a part, as Peyton has said a few times, that he didn't get the chances to work with his his guys over the offseason. But I just hope, hope it doesn't happen to Crosby, too. Yeah, I agree. As far as Crosby goes, I've been reading a lot of hockey websites getting ready for the season. And the one sexy pick for the... MVP this year has been Malkin. So I don't know if that's writers thinking that Crosby's not going to be able to go. I think I think Malkin's going to have a hard time winning the MVP if Crosby's in the lineup just because they'll always split. Yeah, they'll right? split everything, right. right? So hopefully if that is their line of thought that they're not correct. Um my second thing this week, speaking of guys that are fun to watch and clutch, whatever the opposite of clutch is is what is Tony Romo. Uh, He is now single-handedly thrown away two games. In this season. In this season. They were in the driver's seat in the Detroit game. Detroit had no business being in that game. The defense was playing great against Matt Stafford and keeping him at bay. They did their best to keep uh, Calvin Johnson at bay. Tony Romo, I don't know if you actually watched the game, but he threw two horrendous picks he had no business throwing. He should have thrown him into the stands. Especially the third one. Thrown him into the ground uh just take the sack whatever he's he is just a guy that feels pressure and will just heave the ball um he has a lot of physical gifts and he is a talented guy but at some point if he's going to continue to lose games by himself i think the cowboys are going to have to look somewhere else uh i don't know that they have the backup in place right now to do that they probably don't and like i said he is a talented, talented guy. I but. think the word that works best is enigma, right? Because he he does so much right. He's a cool guy. He's likable. Right. You know, he, he's really stand up about it. 
He doesn't go and hide. He's, he stands up and admits his mistakes and faces a really tough media there. Right. And he has a game like two weeks ago where he punctures a lung and breaks a rib and he battles through and he leads a team. But I bet if we sat and thought about games where he couldn't get it done, we could think of them. The, the way that Bill Parcells' career seems to have ended with him dropping the ball, right. holding the, the extra kick. Point, yeah. uh, there was a game against the Steelers in Pittsburgh where he threw a late pick six that resulted in a loss. Like, and I'm sure Cowboys fans can think of more. You know, but then I can think of a game on Monday Night Football against the Bills where he led his team back yeah. from a big deficit. So he's an he's an he's an enigma. I mean, the last game against the Lions this weekend is the perfect microcosm for really his whole career. He came out of that game or out of that or into that game in that first half, and I think he had all three TDs in the first half. If not, he had a monster half. Yep, great half. Then the second half rolls around. And well, he had one TD in the in the third quarter, but the second half rolls around. Not only did he throw three picks, but two of them were pick sixes. He put fourteen points on Detroit's on Detroit's board. I mean, he he single handedly he was the MVP of that game for all the wrong reasons. I have a question for you about okay. this that I just thought of. Do you think that this is a Tony Romo thing, or do you think that there is a chance that this is a situation of being the quarterback in Dallas? Where it's just, it's just impossible. The, the media is tough there. The owner is unbearable. Yeah, the fact he's that he's on the, the sidelines, yeah. looking at you, watching you. I mean, the money, and America's the f- team, right? And all that is that just too much? Does that take a, a a Hall of Fame athlete like Troy Aikman was to be able to overcome all that? Maybe, and maybe some of it's coaching. Like They probably should have played a little bit of boring football in the second half, uh, but he still has to know better than to throw those balls. They were – all three of them were pretty much just heaves. Like he, got, he felt a little bit of pressure and just threw the ball away. He threw the game away, really. I mean, they had the ball 36 minutes to Detroit's 23 minutes because two of their scores came on defensive plays. It's a ton of it's a ton of pressure. It's not an enviable position for a quarterback. I I still think it's inexcusable. He's got to fix that. All right, my second thing: the Major League Baseball playoffs are underway. The Tampa Bay Rays actually are the first team to be eliminated, and the Texas Rangers are the first team to move on to the championship round, the championship series round. They will be playing the winner of the Detroit and New York series in the ALCS, and. There's one thing more than any that has stuck out to me early in the playoffs, and that is that John Smoltz might be the best color guy in all of sports. And he's new at this. John Smoltz reminds me of, and I'm going to make a personal analogy here, my younger brother Anthony is good at everything. (laughs) Anything he wants to be good at, he is. And I think John Smoltz is the same way. Yeah. He was a great baseball pitcher. He was a great closer, closer when he had right. to be. Then yeah. he was a great starter when he needed to be. He could hit a little bit. He's a great golfer. Like oh, yeah. He can literally compete with professionals. You know, He regularly golfs with the Tiger Woods of the world and is respectable. Wow. You know, he's a scratch golfer. 
he's just a guy who seems to be good at any anything that he wants to do. And I've noticed on Twitter that I'm not the only one who thinks this way. John Butchergrass has been raving about him. Richard Deitch has been raving about his work. He is awesome. He's great at it. If you get a chance to watch TBS's coverage, which has kind of been under scrutiny over the years because of maybe the Carey family has maybe not been great. Skip Carey's of the world who have been maybe criticized quite a bit. But John Smoltz is awesome. They found a star there. And I want to say that I've they had a long rain delay on Friday in the Yankees game. There was a long period where they weren't sure if they were going to play it or right, not. Yep. And I thought that their crew with Dennis uh, Eckersley and Cal Ripken did a good job with the host of keeping it moving and keeping it interesting. I basically watched the whole rain delay. <laughs> you know, I was sitting there waiting to watch the game. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I hate the five-game series still. Yeah, it doesn't make short. any sense. doesn't make sense. My last thing this week is uh, ridiculous. The One of the original founders of the UFC, his name is Art Davey, he was one of the UFC's co-founders, is trying to bring back a sport that uh, I guess was around and disappeared without anybody really even realizing it. It's called X-Arm. X, it's all in capital, <laughs> capital X-A-R-M. And what it is is basically, if you've ever seen the movie Over the Top, with uh, Sylvester Sly, Stallone right. trying to win his truck back uh, in an arm wrestling tournament. It's like that mixed with something that Vince McMahon would roll out. <laughs> uh, they strap these players by the waist to the table, to the arm wrestling table, and they somehow strap their hands together, their arm wrestling hands, so they can't break loose. While being strapped like that, you can win a match by getting the player to tap out, or you can, I mean, you can, by pinning his hand, like the traditional arm wrestling way, you can knock the guy out, or you can get him to tap out. So basically, you're strapped to a guy, to a table, and you're allowed to kick and punch him in the head. Uh, it's like boxing. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's very strange. They have highlights on YouTube. Just look up X-A-R-M, all one word. Uh, it looks like they're trying to make it legit. There's fancy graphics, like I said. And it's been picked up by Endomal USA who I didn't recognize as being producers, but they are, and they have projects like Big Brother, Deal or No Deal, Fear Factor, Wipeout. So this is like a big-name company that's picked these guys out. Hopefully it dies a quick death the way the XFL because I <laughs> like the UFC. I've liked even wrestling, like professional wrestling for the entertainment value of it, but this seems ridiculous. Uh and I'm sure I'll watch it if it comes out once or twice just because it's like a freak show. But uh, I don't know what they're thinking. This seems like a total joke. My third thing. I, I mentioned Monday Night Football earlier, and I don't know if you noticed. You may have. That last night, Hank Williams Jr.'s famous Are You Ready for Some Football song was not a part of the broadcast. And ESPN was essentially punishing him. For All My Rowdy Friends is the name of the song specifically. Okay. And ESPN was essentially punishing him for some comments he made on a show called Fox and Friends on Fox News where Williams basically unprompted said of President Obama's outing on the links with House Speaker John Boner. (laughs) That can't be how you say it, right? It's (laughs) not Boner, but it's B-O-E-H-N-E-R. Boner, maybe? Boner. It'd be like Hitler playing golf with 
Israel's prime minister. Nice. And he added that he added to that by saying they're the enemy. Uh, they he meant Obama and Price, Vice President Biden. What? They're not the enemy. <laughs> Politics are ridiculous. Aren't isn't it so stupid? And you know, I I consider myself more right than left. Don I think maybe considers himself more moderate than left or right. But I have a problem, kind of engaging in politics when yeah it's impossible you just (laughs) see how foolish it is and you know i guess this is a sports show and i don't get i don't want to get overly political i guess i brought it up because espn or espn.com is a story about this that has over three thousand comments and it's quite heated yeah i believe it between the two trains of thought and I guess my question, Don, is is do you think that he was simply exercising his First Freedom Amendment right and ESPN should mind their own business? Or do you think ESPN has a right to kind of stick up for Obama, who has been very friendly with them, and kind of say, that isn't acceptable. Knock it off with the Hitler crap. Hitler was a unbelievable <laughs> villain. He's not a cartoon character. Right, right. Well... Yes, he he does have freedom of speech. That said, uh, ESPN and ABC and Disney have to sell advertising. And if the opening act to their Monday Night Football alienates half of the audience, because uh, I'm sure there's people out there that are hardcore right-wingers that loved the comment. You know what I mean? Uh, right. Just like if someone made fun of uh, Bush or Palin or something that hardcore left wingers would love that, but that said, ESPN has to keep an eye on their on their pockets, and that's I'm sure they're gonna get they would have gotten letters about it. I'm sure they are getting letters about it. I'm sure there's people that are angry trying to well three thousand plus r- comments on the original story on ESPN.com, and like you said, it's heated. I'm sure it's back and forth, and politics are. They're harder to talk to about than religion. They're harder to talk about than uh, Sony versus uh, <laughs> Xbox. It's harder than Android versus iTunes or iPods. It it's ridiculous. You can't. People in politics talk to hear themselves talk, and they hear to they talk to hear people that agree with them. I have a quote. Okay, from ESPN. They said, "While Hank Williams Jr. is not an ESPN employee." We recognize that he is closely linked to our company through the open of Monday Night Football. We are extremely disappointed with his comments, and as a result, we decided to pull the open from tonight's telecast. You know what? I don't have a problem with it. I don't either. And I think if Bush was still in office and he said it about Bush, I would like to think that ESPN would do the same thing. Now, do you want to hear what Hank Williams said about his comment? Sure. He said, some of us have strong opinions, and they are often misunderstood. My analogy was extreme, but it was to make a point. I was simply trying to explain how stupid it seemed to me, how ludicrous that pairing was. They're polar opposites, and it made no sense. They don't see eye to eye and never will. I have always respected the office of the president. Well, sure, the pairing might be strange, but ultimately, President President Obama needs to be able to have an open line of communication with the Speaker of the House. (laughs) They need to be able to find some common ground and work together to get things done. 
Yep. It can't be I'm digging my heels in on the left and I'm digging my heels in on the right and we're never going to find any common ground in the middle. I, I can't even watch political TV because it gets me too aggravated. And I hope behind closed – I hope the followers that you hear are like a vocal minority and the actual people in charge play nicer together. You know what I mean? Right. Maybe that's blind hope, but I, I can't see uh, – Take, I can't take comfort in the fact, in the way people talk, like uh, the, the extreme left and right supporters. Like I would not feel good if that's how the country was really ran behind the scenes. Yeah, and you know, I'm with the S man on this. I think they did the right thing. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be angry with them if they decided to pull the plug on Hank Williams Jr. completely. Yeah, who's Hank? I mean, I'm not a country fan, but I mean. He's a guy that was made most famous for the Monday Night Football thing. He should know to yeah. uh, probably keep stay in line a little and bit. Get a, this is not the first time that people have thrown out Hitler's name like that. That's the all-time villain in the history of the world. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's not many people that are going to try to side with Hitler and tell you how yeah, I mean, he was give misunderstood. Me a break. Nobody, I don't. Nobody that I know of in the United States is comparable right now to Hitler. <laughs> right. Yeah. And At good least luck. no one that's elected to public office. Right. I mean, sure. there might be a nut in his basement somewhere who. <laughs> but ridiculous. And as a side note, I have a new favorite politician. Okay. His name is Chris Christie. He's the governor of New Jersey. I've only heard about him. He's hilarious because I heard he's not going to run or something. He there was is a not lot. going to run for president this time. He says he's not ready. Yeah, his name was big on Twitter, but he's hilarious. He is uh, the Tony Soprano of politics. And oh, they compared him on uh, the Daily Show. He said uh, the the Bobby Bacala look alike or yeah, something like that. He does look a lot like Bobby Bacala. Now that you say <laughs> that, he's a big overweight guy, and. He says it like it is. He's uh, very honest, and he's he cracks me up. I, I don't know enough about him or politics whether or not I'm comfortable to say that I'd want him running the office of president, but uh, he's a he's a good time. Right, yeah, like you said, where this isn't a political no. show, but... I, I just wanted to mention for his uh, comedic value. Yeah, I think someday we'll see a president who runs on the idea that he's not a politician because people will just get so sick of politicians. All right, uh, good... Good three things today. Some great discussions there. I think that the best part of the show is next. And that's going to be our interview with Tim Layden, senior writer for Sports Illustrated. And uh, we will take a break and do that interview with Mr. Layden. And then we're going to come back with a book club update. We're going to do an interview with Andrew Pirloff. And we're going to do five on fantasy. And then I'm not sure what we're going to do. Before yeah, the mystery. Before just yet. Surprise. So uh, we will be back with Tim Layden. Our next guest is from Whitehall, New York, and is a graduate of Williams College, where he was a member of the basketball team. He has spent time working for the Schenectady Gazette, Albany Times Union, and Newsday. In 1994, he joined Sports Illustrated, where he is now a senior writer. At SI, he covers the Olympics, horse racing, and the National Football League. Over the course of his distinguished career in journalism, he has won many awards, including an Eclipse Award, 
for coverage of thoroughbred horse racing in 1987. His book, Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, The Ultimate Football Playbook, How Great Coaches Built Today's Game, is now available in paperback. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Tim Layden. How are you doing today, Tim? Hey, I'm good. Guys, thanks. I'm, I'm humbled by that introduction. You have certainly had an incredible career, and we're honored to have you on tonight. And hopefully I wasn't too overbearing because I did work hard on making this happen, and I apologize if I ever crossed the line into stalker, uh, but my <laughs> intentions were always good, and we're very excited to have you on tonight. And initially, when I reached out, uh, you were headed to Korea, I believe, where right. you were covering the uh, World Track and Field uh, Championships, and before we get onto the book and football and things like that, uh, it'd be interesting just to hear because there was a, a very significant kind of event that came out of that, and that was uh, Miss uh, uh, Bolt at being disqualified right. from the uh, one hundred uh, meter race. What was kind of your uh, kind of take on that and the rule itself? And um, it's kind of unique to sports to have you know the greatest athlete in a sport be eliminated from the championship so abruptly like that yeah it's like you know you picture getting to the super bowl and uh you know like let's say the bills get to the super bowl and ryan fitzpatrick is disqualified from playing in the game because he you know uh, you know celebrates in the end zone before the start of the game and so therefore they don't let him play um although try it's certainly the sports aren't entirely analogous, but you know there's a rule in track and field. Uh, everybody, most people, even that aren't track and field fans, are familiar with the term "false start," which basically means a guy leaves the blocks before the gun goes off, uh, or and marginally up to anything under one tenth of a second after the gun goes off, and that's considered a false start. Um, so, uh, but Bolt wasn't even close to it. Usain Bolt is, of course, the he is the entire sport of track and field. He's breathtaking right. performances and. Uh, in Daegu, he uh, he jumped the gun in the hundred meters, and uh, you know before I talk about the rule, I mean I'll just say that being in the stadium that night, and you know there's very few things that are that you really like as a as a fan or for me as a writer that where the moment of anticipation is higher than for a championship or Olympic hundred meters that five seconds before the gun goes off, your heart is right up in your throat pounding. It's a, a heavyweight championship fights are the same way, and and. For me, the Kentucky Derby, because those are events that are over very quickly, and so you don't really know what's going to happen, but the anticipation is very, very high, both from a from an excitement standpoint and from a journalism standpoint, because you don't know what you're going to be writing in 10 seconds or two minutes. But anyway, so you're waiting there for both, and you're expecting this virtuoso performance, or you're kind of wondering if he's going to deliver, because he's kind of had a poor summer, and, and then he fall starts, and it's it was just absolutely, it was just stunning, and you just had no idea and, and I actually saw Bolt a week ago in Los Angeles. We sat down and talked for a long time and you know, he said it was stunning for him too and, and I was kidding him. I said, you know, did you know you fall started? And he said, Come on man, you know, I mean <laughs> I was a step ahead of the whole field before the gun went off. Yeah, I knew. Um I don't like the rule. I think that the old rule where if one guy fall starts, they charge everybody with one and then the next one and you're out. I think that allowed everybody to sort of take the edge off and, and maybe take a chance on jumping the gun once. Um, I just don't think track can afford to throw guys out like Usain Bolt. You got You got. I like the original rule. This one is more fair technically, but I don't think track can can really just concentrate entirely on fairness. Uh, 
they they got to keep Bolt in the race. Yeah, and it, it was. I mean, his performance at the at the previous Olympics was you know unbelievable. Just. To watch him run, it's just so breath. It's it's literally breathtaking. I mean, I've never really seen an athlete like that, and uh, you know, to to think that there's a way that he could be just disregarded from the championship like that is almost silly. Did you get an impression from the eventual winner that he almost felt cheated? You know that yeah, he's the champion, but it's going to be completely overshadowed by the fact that they threw the best runner in the race out beforehand. Well, I don't know. The winner was a guy named Johan Blake, who's also from Jamaica and, in fact, trains with Usain Bolt every day. And there was none of that from him. I mean, basically, okay. his attitude was, these are the rules. Usain broke the rules. I won. Give me the gold medal. And I feel bad. He's my training partner. But, you know, this is the way it goes. And I kind of admire him for that. You know, I mean, the fact is, you can't fall start. And, and Blake had been... It, it was, there was an interesting subtext to it, you know, not to get too tracky on everybody, but those guys trained together. Bolt had been injured for all of 2010, and it took a long time to come back and start running fast this year, and he never got to that world record level this year. And, you know, in April, May, June, even into July, this young kid, Johan Blake, was just kicking Usain Bolt's butt every day in practice. So for him to beat him in a championship wasn't as stunning to him as it was to everybody else. Um, he felt he was going to be very competitive in that race no matter what happened. Um, you know, th- this is the thing about athletes is we sometimes we project on them the way we feel, you know, like this team can't beat that team, the Bills can't beat the Patriots, whatever. Well, they don't feel that way. You know, they're athletes. They have a certain um, blind confidence at times that, that we don't share as fans, and, and that, that race was one of those times. I mean, that guy thought he was going to beat Bolt, and – you know, the fact that a lot of people felt Bolt false started because he was so twitchy because he thought he might lose the race. Hmm. And he denied that to me. He was twitchy because he was anxious to run fast. Who knows? But, you know, I'm, I'm just saying athletes think differently. And, you know, they, they feel they can win even when we don't. Currently, uh, I guess the greatest American presence in the sport is Tyson Gay, and he also didn't compete where does he kind of stand, and do you, is he going to be a factor in, in the Olympics in London? Does, is he a guy who has a chance to challenge in these races? You know, I mean, we don't know. He had, he had surgery on his hip in the summer, and he's a guy, uh, he's 28 or 29. He's had a lot of races. You know, he ran all through high school, junior college, college, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of times in the, to the starting gun, and, uh, and that's his, and, and, and a tendency to get injured. So, I mean, there's some question of whether he's ever going to be what he used to be. And, it's, I mean, in 2007, he was beating Usain Bolt for laughs um, before Bolt suddenly discovered how to run somehow. Um, hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's tough on Gay, but I, I don't know. Walter Dix, uh, who ran at Florida State, is a little younger. He's Bolt's age, or a little younger than Bolt. He's 23 or 24. He's right now the best U.S. sprinter, but he's not competitive with Bolt or Blake. You know, the U.S. is does not have a healthy gold medal threat in, in the sprints right now on the men's side for the Olympics. So it's for people that are going to be sitting in their living rooms watching the Olympics next summer, they're going to see a lot of uh, yellow, and, uh, yellow and green Jamaican uniforms in the sprints and not a lot of red, white, and blue. 
I, I kind of was in the same position a couple of weeks ago when I had your colleague John Wertheim on, and we were talking all about the U.S. Open, and I felt pretty good about myself as an interviewer that I had asked the questions that I was supposed to ask, and, and I feel the same way about this, that I, I've kind of asked you the questions that I was supposed to ask you about the event. But my next question is, uh, for someone who's maybe, uh, you know, I would be obviously a casual fan of track and field, and I mm-hmm. love to watch during the Olympics. But for someone who is really kind of interested in the sport and wants to take it another level, what was kind of another story that emerged out of this World Championships that maybe a casual observer like me may have missed? Well, I mean, Bolt is the story. Okay. So I mean, but if you, if you want to go one level deeper, there's a there's a bunch of things that are going to be interesting to follow, especially, you know, I'll keep this from a U.S. perspective because when you get to the international track perspective, again, Bolt is international because he's Jamaican, so, you know, I don't want to get too, you know, start talking about, you know, the great Ethiopian Kenanisa Bekele who's, you know, maybe come back and try to win again in the 5,000 and 10,000. I don't, I think that's a little, that's too far off the radar for other than real track fans in America. But on the American side, there's a, young woman named Allison Felix who tried to run both the 200 and 400 meters at the World Championships. She's a three-time, a two-time Olympic silver medalist and the 200 three-time world champion. Does not have an Olympic gold medal and she's getting into her mid to, you know, 26, I think she'll be 26 next year. With, again, a lot of miles, a lot of tread off the tires, as they say, and would like to get a gold medal and, and doesn't know which event she might run, the 200, the 400, even the 100. And I think for track fans to follow Allison Felix over the next nine or ten months to see what she chooses to run, where she tries to fit in and, 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 and try and get that gold medal will be an interesting thing. There's another woman named Carmelita Jetter. It's spelled like Derek Jeter, but pronounced Jetter. Um, who's a, who was a great chance to win the 100 meters as a, as a U.S. woman, um, you know, running well into her 30s, and there's a, um, a lot of admiration for what she's done and a lot of, a lot of concern that, that there may be pharmaceuticals involved, and she's never Ooh. tested positive for anything, um, and that will be a subtext of her gold medal run. So, I mean, that's a couple of stories on the U.S. women's side. Um, there's some distance runners in the U.S. that, that could break through and, and sort of interrupt the East African dominance there and, and at events from 1,500 all the way up to 10,000, and I think that'll be interesting to watch too. We're going to make an incredible transition here to go from track and field to the National Football League, but I want to but talk... It's not, it's not really, because a lot of guys in the NFL have run track, trust me. You right, know, yeah. And, and, and all over the field, a lot of offensive linemen have been shot putters and discus throwers, and a lot of wide receivers and running backs have been have been sprinters. I mean, there's... I can walk into any NFL locker room and, and, and strike up a track conversation with half the guys in the room and, and have it go pretty well. So it's, it's not that big a transition. Didn't Jacoby Ford uh, run track and field at Florida? Am I right on that? Uh, I thought I heard yes. that. Yeah. No, I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. Yeah, neither but am I, probably. but I thought I heard that. Yeah, yeah. he's certainly fast, a fast guy in the league. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the book. Uh, I was just strolling around in the bookstore uh, a couple months ago. And um, I picked it up, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And it's it's a great book to read, uh, to kind of like, I kind of felt like I there was all these parts of the game that I thought I knew about, but really, if I was forced to draw up the cover two or uh, the Tampa two or things like that, I might have struggled. But I think if you read this book and you really pay attention, 
you can go a lot farther in understanding the intricacies of the game. And I think that's what, what's great about it. Is, is that kind of what you set off to accomplish when you wrote this book, or was there kind of another goal in mind? Well, there were two goals, and it's sort of like, um, you know, I didn't want to write a straight X's and O's book uh, because there's a lot of those out there. And I, I, my goal was to try and reach a little wider audience, obviously because I'd like more people to buy the book and read it and appreciate it. Um, but also because I thought, you know, my skill set as a journalist, I've done a lot of stories over the years uh, that, that are about schemes and offenses and defenses because I do find that fascinating. And I do find that coaches and athletes like to talk about that stuff because it's what they do for a living. You know, it's like talking to a doctor about performing surgery. You know, that's what engages him rather than talking to him about, you know, his family life, which is what we do with athletes. You know, we, we want to talk to him often about, other things that make them interesting. You know, why were they abandoned as a child? Why do they like to paint? You know, well, that's all cool, but, you know, really what a lot of athletes like to talk about is what they do for a living. Um, so that part of it I thought would be good, but I, what I wanted to do, you know, like when you, when you take the cover two, which was sort of, you know, invented by, you know, uh, Bud Carson with the, the Steel Curtain Steelers of the 70s and then improved upon and changed by a lot of people over the years, um, you know, Monty Kiffin and Tony Dungy and all those guys, just to talk about one scheme, but kind of take the scheme and then also the people and the circumstances that led to the development of that scheme. You know, why did, why did Bud Carson do this with the Steelers? Why did Monty Kiffin make changes and Tony Dungy make changes? What was the impetus to try and, you know, get Bill Walsh? What, why did Bill Walsh install what became known as the West Coast offense, although it was in, put together in Cincinnati? Um, you know, what... And, and sort of make it a people story as well as a scheme story and, and sort of put the two together. And I think I was reasonably successful with it. I mean, there were people that criticized the book and said, you know, I really wanted more technical football here or, you know, there was too much technical football. I wanted more stories. So I tried to do, be all things to all people, and I think a lot of people liked the book and plenty of people thought, you know, they wish I had done one of more or the other. This is a book that you could probably rewrite every few years just to include, you know, the game is always evolving. And I know in the uh, preview edition of, for the National Football League and Sports Illustrated this year, Peter King wrote a piece about how defenses are changing and trying to keep up with uh, the, just the explosive offenses that are going on uh, in, in the National Football League now. As you kind of look at the first five weeks of the season, um, is there anything that sticks out as kind of like a big change, either on offense or defense, something that you could see as being a chapter in this book if you were to redo it in the future? I mean, I think that the, defensively, I think what we see now, and defenses are getting killed right now. So, I mean, it's, uh, and a lot of that is a function of rules, you know, the, the increasing um, rules changes that, that, that have made it tougher to hit people and, and the, especially receivers and to defend them coming off the line of scrimmage and all that started in the late seventies and has just been modified and modified and modified over the years. And what defenses have done to try and do that, as, as Sean Payton said to Peter King is confuse them um, because you can't really physically, you're at a tremendous disadvantage on defense. And so I think what, you know, there's, when I wrote about, uh, the Ryan family defenses. I, I wound up sort of toward the end of that chapter talking about a lot of the defenses that, that where you get like maybe one guy with his hand on the ground and ten guys just walking around, mm. um, sort of 
trying to wait until the last possible snap, uh, the last the last beat in the in the play clock to really show their hand. And I think you see more, and that's common now. Whereas when Rex Ryan was doing it, you know, sort of, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, it was pretty new. You know, when they when they confused Peyton Manning and and the Colts beat him anyway in 2006, there was a lot of one guy in a three-point stance and everybody else walking around, overloading the formation. And I think you see a lot of that. Now, from an offensive standpoint, what you're looking at really are variations on the college spread offense without the running quarterback. Basically, four wide receivers, five wide receivers, a lot of option routes that were, and, and these are things that, you know, I didn't write a lot about option routes in the book. I mean, I guess if I was going to do another chapter offensively, it really would be, about what has become the modern NFL spread offense. And, and the Bills are running it right now. And, and then there's also the modern NFL three tight end offense, which has also become big. You know, with, with the Patriots putting three tight ends on the field a lot and, and then the evolution of the tight end into a, a smaller guy who really can't run block the way that tight ends traditionally were expected to. Um, you know, so, I mean, those are some of the themes I've seen developed just this year and obviously they're all evolutionary they've been building for a couple of years now another big theme in the book and something that you i think came out and directly said is that we have to keep in mind you know what a copycat league this is and how when something becomes successful everyone rushes to copy it and maybe the wildcat is a, a an example of that, you know, where the the Dolphins found some success, and now it seems like every team has maybe some small package in their overall offense that that will show it. Like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers ran a play, I think, out of the Wildcat last night on Monday Night Football. Um, but in the, of the last two Super Bowl champions, the Saints and the Packers, have both been very explosive offensive teams that do their best on defense to cause turnovers do you see a similarity between those two teams and how are other teams trying to copy the saints and the packers in you know to keep up the packers well offensively um you know they both you know i think that the, the similarity offensively is that they both have very they have quarterbacks who can operate at a super high level intellectually and physically probably Breeze a little higher level intellectually. Rodgers, probably the highest level in the game right now physically in terms of the combination of accurate passing, strong arm, and also the ability to elude the rush with his feet. Um, Breeze is probably, you know, along with Manning, maybe even more than Brady, the, the guy who, who's got the computer in his head. You know, so I mean, but, but to, to a very high level, both of those guys, you know, a lot of, a lot, a lot of shotgun, a lot of quick reads. Now, one way in which I think that changes somewhat is that the Packers have more of a, of a vertical downfield passing game, um, and that may be a function of personnel. Um, and the Saints are a little more of a, you know, they, the, the, the Sean Payton offense is, is a hybrid of West Coast and Coriel, which is the, more of a downfield game, but, but they have more West Coast stuff in their offense, even in the Packers. And, and, you know, Mike McCarthy comes from a West Coast system to some extent. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, those, two, those two things are similar. But I think the way in which people try and copy them is to try and simply put it, to try and find that quarterback that can do those things. You know, I mean, I, I don't, right. you know, the schemes are, are very similar 
top to bottom in the NFL, but it's just the level of efficiency of the quarterback in a lot of cases. Defensively, the Packers have that Don Capers zone blitz package, um, you know, and, and that's that's been a staple of his for you know two decades now. Um, Greg Williams is a little bit different, um, you know. It's it's not not so much zone blitz stuff. So I mean, you know, and and the Packers obviously play to the strength of their individuals. They have those three huge guys up front. So, I mean, there's there's again, it becomes more personnel differences there. The Sportscasters are here with the great Tim Layden from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at S-I-Tim-Layden, L-A-Y-D-E-N. Uh, as maybe the author of this book or as a journalist or as just a fan of football, what kind of uh, storylines or things have really interested you now that we're a month into the season? Uh, what things have surprised you? What things have not surprised you? What storylines really interest you what are you looking to pursue as we go into the second month of the season you know there's a couple stories that 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 have appealed to me to work you know to work on stories generally i mean obviously um we've seen the four highest passing yardage weeks in nfl history in the in the first four weeks of this season hmm. if you add up all the passing yards for all 32 teams and obviously Expansion changes that, but the number also holds up if you go yards per game. By a wide margin, over 300 yards per game, the previous full season record was like 278, I think. So it's just, that's getting blown away. So, I mean, I think at some point we at SI are going to have to address that. Um, Whether I do the story or not, I'm not sure. Um, Peter may do it. Um, We may help each other on it. But there's got to be a story that you do about really the extent to which the game has, has become ultimate frisbee in some ways do you, do you have a and, do you have a theory as to why that is this year especially though you would think with the shortened uh off season that the offense would be a little bit behind the defense and it's been clearly the other way yeah i'm 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 not sure why there's been such a jump this year and i think you know again we have to see if it levels out over the next like four to eight weeks you know see if that number comes back to the pack a little bit as as maybe defenses adjust to stuff i mean i you know but I don't. I don't think it's going to come all the way back. I think you're going to see record-setting passing numbers by the end of this year. And and I do think you know the big thing that has changed from last year to this year, obviously, are the rules on hitting receivers, which were we had the enforcement rule on Black Sunday last year, and then we had you know augmented rules this year in terms of you know really how you can hit a guy. And I think every game I see, um, whether I'm in a stadium or whether I'm watching you know NFL Red Zone at home on a Sunday. Um, you can see five examples in every game of a safety pulling up or a linebacker pulling up, and I think it, I think it has affected the aggressiveness of offenses, and, and I just think, that, I think that's been a change. And I think offenses have evolved, and, and you're seeing more four- and five-wide receiver sets, and I, I just think you're seeing, you saw gradual movement. You know, the, the three or four biggest passing years have all been in the last five years, and then now this year you've seen a, a, a bigger jump forward. And, you know, I... I you know, I think it's been coming, basically, and I think you're seeing more skilled quarterbacks come in, guys like Cam Newton, who nobody thought would be this effective, and, and yet he is. Um, you know, I, I just think that young guys are coming in that can play right away. The learning curve is, is shorter. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I think that's one thing. And, you know, if, if you take an off-the-field view, I just also think that, you know, despite the lockout, you know, despite – you know, ec- struggling economic conditions in a lot of the parts of the United States. The NFL continues to be just just a, a, a money machine. Uh, television yeah. ratings, advertising rates, everything is again off the charts. When you thought the league might take a hit, 
after the negative publicity associated with the lockout, and and yet it's just. And I think they've had good storylines to help that. You know, the Patriots have been good, and people love the Patriots. Um, they've had they've had some Cinderella stories with the Bills and the Lions that that have attracted viewership in areas that might not otherwise have had it. Uh, so I mean. But you know the the league continues to be a, an economic marvel, and I think that that's a story too. And, and there's a couple individual pieces I'm working on too that I don't want to talk too much about right now. But yeah. um, you know, but there's some good there's some good individual stuff going on as well. Yeah, we're actually in Buffalo, New York. Uh, what has been your impressions uh, of the Bills so far this season? And uh, did did your opinion of them change at all last week, or did you think that that was just kind of the ultimate trap game? I don't know if I call it a trap game yet because I don't know how good they are for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like the, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I have a very hard, I mean, right now all I know for sure about the NFL is that the Packers are really good. You know, I'm not convinced that any of the other things we're seeing are, are true or if they're illusions. You know, I mean, because, okay, the Patriots go into Buffalo and the Buffalo comes from 21 down and beats them, but... The Patriots are awful on defense, and we tend to we tend to give that a pass because it's the Patriots. But you know, you know that may have been as much the Patriots being the 32nd ranked defense in the NFL as it was the Bills being newly great. You know, I think the Bills are good. I think they're better, but I don't know if we're going to know for a few weeks. I mean, the league is so much set up for everybody to go eight and eight that you know I, I you know there's just a lot of a lot of I don't knows out there. You know the the Lions haven't beaten, you know, I mean, I don't know what Dallas is, and Dallas handed them that game in the fourth quarter. Yeah. So I don't know if the Lions are a real 4-0. and You know, the other, they, you know, Tampa Bay looks pretty good, and the Lions did beat them, but Tampa Bay was life and death to beat a pretty bad Indianapolis team last night at home. Um, so then, you know, I, I just don't know. I mean, I think, I think the Bills are good, but I'm not, you know, I'm just so, um, I'm kind of anesthetized to, the whole upset thing in the NFL, you know, I, I just, you know, I thought I thought that would be a good game, you know, coming off beating the Patriots and going to Cincinnati, and Cincinnati maybe isn't horrible, you know, it's uh, and the Bills might not be as good as three and zero and just beat the Patriots, you know, if they have a they have some fairly tough opponents coming up in the next few weeks, and you know, it wouldn't be a shock to see a team that was three and zero wind up, you know, five and four at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and right in the and in the hunt in the AFC East, which I think they will stay in the hunt in the AFC East. Um, but you know, I don't know that they were a team that was going to go thirteen and three, and I don't expect them to go thirteen and three. I want to just for the last couple of minutes here talk a little bit about Sports Illustrated and uh, how great. I don't think there's any sports entity out there that does as good of a job as you guys do with football, and we've been able to kind of talk with all the different aspects of the coverage. We've talked to Don Banks and, you know, all the great work that he does with the uh, website. And we've talked to Peter King and all the great work that he does representing Sports Illustrated on television and uh, writing articles for the magazine. We're getting the chance to talk to you. We've talked to Drew Lawrence. We had a chance to talk to Chris Burke, who's kind of having this role as like a blogger and kind of just kind of help like, putting a period at the end of everyone else's sentences. And I, I guess my question is, is like, how do you feel about having all these different gears and how all you guys seem to work greatly together and complement each other? Is that something that you guys have concentrated really hard on accomplishing? 
You know, I, ha- I have to say that, you know, um, the Paul Fichtenbaum and B.J. Schechter, who are the guys at the top of the food chain at the website, are in charge of making sure that they have things covered on that end. Don is, is relentlessly busy. Nobody on earth is as busy as Peter. Um, you know, and, and for me, um, you know, I fit in in a funny place because I cover a lot of things. Um, you know, right now I'm sitting on my desk and I have two and a half NFL stories that are all fairly major stories that I'm working on, um, you know, that, that are like three and five weeks down the road to finish or four and six weeks down the road. And whether I do anything in the interim is not known. Next week I'm going to North Carolina to interview Mike Krzyzewski for a story, a college basketball story, and I'm in the middle of a story on Usain Bolt at the same time. Um, so I have a different role than a, than a lot of those other guys who are all pretty NFL-centric. You know, Jim Trotter does a great job on the nuts and bolts and then keeping up on the league. Damon Hack, who covers golf also, also is a terrific writer and does a good job on the NFL. Um, you know, and, and I just try and fit in and write sort of, you know, I'm a story writer. I'm not an in- information guy in the NFL. I don't have a, a a phone full of contacts like Peter does. And I I come in and out and do stories. And and I think because it's SI, there's there is there is a place for someone to do that and a need for someone to do that. And and I'm very thankful that that need exists and that I'm able to to jump in and do a story, you know, on Cam Newton like I did three weeks ago, and then eight days later go see Usain Bolt you know, for a, for a different story, and that SI allows me to, to jump in and out of sports and, and to keep me busy in different ways. And, uh, and it's because guys like Peter and Don and Jim Trotter are so on top of the daily function of the NFL that, that I'm able to do that. And, and, and because I'm able to do stories, there, there's a need for it. And it's, I think it's a great mix of, of, of talents and personalities. Two last questions just about technology. Have you got a chance to see the magazine on the iPad? And how do you see the iPad kind of taking this magazine into the deep into the 21st century? Well, I mean, yeah, I do. I read it on the iPad now. Yeah, and so I do I. And I have, a, I have a paper subscription, which obviously transfers to the iPad, but I don't even read it on paper anymore uh, because... You know, do you guys read it on the iPad? I do. I download it every Tuesday at midnight. It's it. It's almost seems like I can get it two days earlier than when it comes in the mailbox on Thursday. Yeah. And I love all the enhancements that uh, the iPad provides, and the way that Sports Illustrated obviously is part of it is known for the great pictures, and they look so beautiful on the iPad. And personally, I love it. I, I just yeah. love it. I think it translates. So, so do I. I mean, as soon as I. You know, I mean, because I was hired by a magazine that has staples and paper, I, I always felt like that would be the core, and, and it may be for a long time because, you know, it's still, you know, the magazine has 3.2 million subscribers, and certainly they don't all have iPads. Um, and maybe they, everybody will someday, but I think we're a ways away from that. But it is a tremendously evolved product on the iPad, and, and you point out the pictures, and, you know, there's always a joke in the offices at SI that, you know, whenever you may be get disrespectful of a photographer who's infringing on your turf as you're trying to do a story, always remember that the name of the magazine isn't Sports Written, it's Sports Illustrated. <laughs> and, uh, and the pictures are really what has dis- have distinguished the magazine every bit as much as the writing over the years. And, and the pictures just are explosively spectacular on the iPad. I mean, they're almost three-dimensional. Yeah, They're so good and, and you know, in ways that paper just can't, can't convey and, and that's what that's what i was blown away by initially the enhancements are great too i mean there's a lot of 
there's a lot of great things about it. I mean, I, I'm glad we're doing it. It's, it makes for a longer work week for all the very hardworking people in the office in New York. And uh, sometimes we have to do extra stuff for the iPad, but often they just pick us up on that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great. Peter does a lot of extra stuff for the iPad. And yeah. Again, Peter is tireless. And I know that uh, Joe Poznanski is going to be has been very involved in the version 2.0 of the iPad app, and uh, you know I I just I, I just love it. I love I love the the way that SI has has treated it as you know just kind of the evolution. And it, as you mentioned, the pictures you know it's great. They might only have space to print two or three pictures uh, in in the magazine, but then you might get six or seven on the iPad, and it's great. Last yeah, question: Those guys, yeah, those guys yeah, take hundreds of pictures. So yeah. I mean, it's great. Yeah, the last question I had for you, it kind of you know, is just is Twitter. Uh, how do you feel about it? How 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 has it changed what you do? You know, where do you where do you fall on on, on Twitter? Well, again, you know, since I'm not a day to day information guy, um, I use Twitter somewhat more. There's two things I'm not. I'm not a day to day information guy, so I'm not breaking news on the NFL. If I'm on a if I'm on assignment like at the World Track and Field Championships, I was tweeting 20 times a day because there was news and there were opinions and there were things I could update and you know, I had a lot of track followers. So, I mean, that, that was great. And I'll do the same thing when I'm at a horse racing event or if I'm like at the Super Bowl, that kind of thing. But during the week, if I'm just doing feature stories, I'm not on it much because in addition to not being an information guy, I'm not a guy who tweets about my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people do that and I have chosen at this point not to do that, you know, to tell people what I had for lunch, to tell people that I'm getting on the plane. I've done it a few times. I'm not super comfortable with it. But, but if I'm, I, the, I found it most, it's a great thing, no question. You know, I've found it most useful to, to tweet links to my stories and, and web pieces. And when I'm at an event where, there is, where there, it's a very um, dynamic, liquid, evolving situation with like a track meet with a lot of events going on or, or a football game where you can make observations that maybe somebody on TV can't see, when I'm in that arena, I like to tweet. When I'm just in a more static situation, you know, I'm not inclined to tweet from my couch. I'm not inclined to tweet from my office desk chair. So, I mean, it's kind of a, I'm kind of in between the, the non-tweeters and the, the heavy tweeters. Have you ever, like, used Twitter to learn about something that you were writing about? Like, uh, wh- where do you f- how do you feel about the athlete's role on Twitter? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, follow. I, I try and follow a lot. I don't follow all of them because, you know, it's just, you can't follow every athlete in the NFL, at least I can't. Um, now, when I'm at a track meet again or a horse racing thing or a skiing thing, which I cover a lot of, I make sure to follow all those people. If I'm covering an NCAA basketball regional, I'll try and grab a bunch of the, the prominent players and throw them on there and see if they're tweeting anything in real time that I could use in a story. No question that, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's helpful and discouraging at the same time to know that athletes might say something on Twitter that they wouldn't say to you, but 